Hello, hello, and welcome to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm your host, Joanna Cifredo. And I'm your host, Rebecca Kling, coming at you live from Ten Tigers Parlor in Washington, D.C. <laughs> this is our first time doing a live show, so bear with us. Joanna, I have to be honest with you. I um, really wanted to have a sound effect there of a bear, because you said bear with us, and it would be like an auditory pun, and then you could make a joke about it not being that kind of bear. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I just thought? No. If this is a live show, wouldn't that just be a radio show? Well, they're not, they're going to not listen to it live. They have to wait. Yeah, so then it's not a real live show. It's just a, it's well, a basically pre-recorded. But yeah, it's but pre-recorded we're always in alive. front of people. But we're always alive. But I couldn't get the bear sound effect to work. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so what happened? No, I just couldn't get it to play. I have this fancy new stuff that we got to record for tonight. Um, and I couldn't get the sound to play from my phone, through the speakers, through the thing. <sighs> so... Um, I thought we were going to be able to do the sound effects, but it can't. But we can't. Yeah. It's not a big deal, whatever. Well, thank you. With that out of the way, let's get started. Good idea. So how's tonight going to work? I thought the two of us could start with a chat, maybe take some questions from the audience, maybe pose some questions to the audience. I love it. And then when we're done, we're going to take a quick break. Y'all can get even more drunk. Uh, and then we're going to come back for a couple of performers. Are we performing? Uh, we, we absolutely are. Did you rehearse? Of course I did. Well, I didn't either, so it's fine. <laughs> so what are we got to talk about first? Well, ever since the 2016 elections, I have been thinking a lot about how do we effectively organize? What is, what is the value of protesting? Like, I've attended a bunch of protests in front of the White House, and do they do anything? Do they matter? How do we actually create change? So just a small, easy question. Yeah, some small, easy questions. I got, yeah, well. And I've been particularly thinking about it as I've been watching the protests and activism after the Parkland shooting. Because as much as I, I love that these students are organizing and that they are making shit happen, I'm just really worried that nothing is going to happen and that gun control is not going to actually change anything. Well, not with that attitude and not with that language. Why we, not? Because we say gun reform, gun control pulls really badly. Oh, fine. So gun reform. Well, and I, I know I'm just a pessimist. activist jargon. So you were actually at the March for Our Lives in D.C., weren't you? I was. I was here. How many people were there? <laughs> and then a few weeks before that, you were in Miami, and you got to meet Emma Gonzalez. I did. I was invited to attend the Equality Florida Gala as a representative of GLSEN. Equality Florida, of course, is a great organization working to improve the lives of LGBTQ Floridians. And because they were honoring the GSA from Stoneman Douglas, and I'm from Florida, I had the opportunity to meet Emma Gonzalez, David Hogg, their GSA advisor, Mario, and so many other of the other uh, organizers, um, including some of the pulse survivors that were mm. there, too. Um, last weekend, I also had the opportunity to be here in D.C. for the march, um, as you mentioned. But I also got to attend a CNN town hall. Oh, interesting. What was that like? It was awesome. Who was town halling? It 
what, what was the Van Jones show, and they had um, some of the survivors from Stoneman Douglas, um, some youth organizers uh, that work on the south side of Chicago, mm-hmm. and um, they also had the opposing view. They had two young people who were against gun reform. I was going to say, the opposing view in favor of school shootings? Like, what is the opposing view there? <laughs> no, there was, um, one was, one of them was a young lady who um, experienced assault mm. while she was in college. So, you know, your heart went out to her. Um, the other guy just seemed like standard. Just like a tool? Standard Republican. <laughs> yeah, basically. So I'm really curious. There were a couple of folks who um, said that they were at the DC March for Our Lives. Would anyone be willing to come up and join us and, and share what that was like for a few? Stony, scared silence from the audience. <laughs> crickets. Insert. A bunch of people avoiding eye contact. All right, insert is, cricket noise later. This is a consent-based performance. No one's going to be forced to come up. Um, Amy, come up here. Oh. <laughs> So we're consent-based to a point. I didn't consent to that. Can you introduce yourself however you're comfortable? Hi, Amy Nelson. All right, let's give Amy a hand. So what was it like at March for Our Lives? It was crowded, but it was energized and uh, powerful, touching, moving, and very crowded. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to acknowledge what I feel like was an unintentional power imbalance of us being about a foot and a half higher than you are. It's okay. And that I'm was... good with it. Oh, okay. This is where I like to be. I like to look down upon people. And um, what was... This is a boring question. What was the weather for the march? It was 50s, maybe? It was nice. It was oh, sunny. That's yeah, great. It, yeah. wasn't, it was nice weather. It was nice protest weather. And what, yeah. like, what drives you to go out to a protest? Like, I, I struggle so much with, like, does holding a sign up in front of the White House do something? And so I've been thinking a lot about that because I was on a call that morning with some social activists, and someone on the group call said, oh, I'm not going down there today. What's the point of marching? It doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't affect change. And I, I respected her position, but also felt obligated to let her know why I was marching. And that was to join in the community power and energy that's generated by getting so many like-minded people together. And not only like-minded people, but diverse people, right? Like there were old people, young people, people with kids, people with babies, people with their grandparents. And I love the idea that all walks of life got together, made it a priority on that Saturday morning to be there, to be a part of that, that energy. Awesome. Well, thank you. Do you have any, any amazing signs that you remember? Well, one of my favorites I put on Facebook that says, things more regulated than guns. Sudafed, fireworks, my uterus. Awesome. Thought that was a good one. Do you have any deep, insightful questions for Amy? Shallow, not, uninsightful questions? All right, thank you, Amy. <laughs> And Joanna actually had a sign at March for Our Lives that went a little viral. I did. <laughs> I had a sign that said we should have passed gun reform after Selena. 
right? I like that one person found that funny and everyone else found it really insightful. Exactly. It makes you think, you know, like Selena, that she's always like even 25 years later, she's just a jack of all trades. So what is what is in this day and age going viral on Instagram mean? Like how many? It was close to 40,000 likes. That is a lot. Yeah. I don't know what viral, like someone said it. I was like, I commented. I was like, hey, can I meet Christella? At, like at Christella. <laughs> So you're really trying to take advantage of your moment. Yeah, I was like, I literally commented. I was like, how can I turn in these likes for a meeting with Christella? I'm just a trans activist. I do wish you could some like you could exchange followers for you know some sort of loyalty program. I don't know. Um, So so you were at March for Our Lives. You were at this event in Florida. What was it like being there? It was amazing. Like Amy said, it was crowded. Um, No, but it was really, um, it was moving just to be in around so many people who are adding their voice to this growing course, um, saying that like, this is something that we need. This is is past time. How many lives have we lost? And we don't get them back. Right. Um, And so it was was really moving. It didn't hit me, I think, until... Sunday after I got home back to New York um, and I watched Jennifer Hudson's performance again and it, I was I just started crying and she gave testimony through that song and it was so moving and anyone who knows uh, Jennifer Hudson's um, personal story uh, knows why it's so impactful and she um, was interviewed by Van Jones <laughs> during the town hall and and so where do you want to see these youth organizers go next? To the ballot box. Yep. Fingers crossed. Um, it makes me think about organizing and stuff I was involved in in high school. Um, what sort of stuff were you involved in? So a lot of it was protesting against the Iraq War. Uh, my high school had a huge walkout on the National Day of Action in 03. Um, and then a bunch of people went down. So we shut down the streets around the high school. And then a bunch of people went down to Chicago. I grew up just north of Chicago, um, and I watched, I have mixed feelings about not having been there, but I watched the um, larger protests downtown take over Lakeshore Drive and shut down traffic for quite a while. Um, And I think going back to to what our wonderful guest was saying, um, it did, those protests definitely added to the conversation that was happening, but it's depressing that a decade and a half later we still have troops in Iraq and that it, it, the protesting was important and also isn't the only thing that can, it can't be the only thing. Yeah. It's worth reminding people that we are still a nation at war. Yeah. But I was slightly more positive. I was super excited to see that um, <laughs> the superintendent said 90% of the high school walked out from uh, my hometown, which is awesome. Um, although but at it that point- makes you think like the 10% who stayed. Yeah. <laughs> like. Well, and at that point, I feel like it's not a walkout. It's just like moving school. <laughs> because they had, they had a school-sanctioned event. And I grew up in the, uh, a progressive place, so it was a school-sanctioned event. But um, talking about gun reform, it wasn't like some of these schools you heard about that did like a memorial and intentionally sort of steered away from anything political. Um, but they were in the school bleachers. like So it, was, it, it felt like a walkout in name only. And again, that's not a criticism. That's just... A, a observation that I'm glad that the 
high school I went to was supportive enough in yeah. that way. It's a communal statement. Yes, yes. What about you? What were you involved in around protesting in high school? Or were you? Well, I remember the only big protest um, was around immigration. Um, I remember we had one march at, um, it was called El, El Dia Sin Inmigrantes, the, the Day Without Immigrants. Um, and me and all my friends, we all like cut school and my mom made us sandwiches and my mom's factory, they threatened that mm-hmm. anyone um, didn't go to work if they went attended the march that they would be fired. So they all wore all white with red um, uh uh, handkerchiefs. And this was around Orlando? Yeah. And um, which were like the colors of the protests. So I remember that was like the only big march. Um, I don't really remember seeing any real organizing um, around mass sh- shootings. Um, it was mostly around natural disasters because I'm from Florida. So um, Floridians, we tend to have a lot of ties to the Caribbean and to like Latin America and South America. So we tend to band together whenever um, there are natural disasters. So I remember we had, during that time, we organized around the earthquake in Haiti, the tsunami in Southeast Asia, um, and then there was uh, Hurricane Katrina. And then in my sophomore year, we Central Florida got hit by three major hurricanes. Jeez. Um, and so it's kind of interesting now seeing young people organizing around Puerto Rico um, and the earthquake in Mexico um, and a lot of these kind of parallels Mm. but they're also having to take up um, issues that we that during my time when I was in high school we didn't have like the capacity to, to take on so they're fighting for their lives and fighting for kids in Flint you know, our neighbors in Puerto Rico, our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico, they're fighting for, you know, people in California, DACA recipients, you know. Well, and as much as the way technology and and phones in particular have developed is a double-edged sword, and there are a lot of ways that I have zero envy for young people today of like being in high school in the age of Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook and creepy sites that collect all your data. Um, (laughs) But like Facebook and Twitter. Um, but I can only imagine that organizing is so much easier when you're not having to do a phone tree or like remember someone's aim handle. Uh, <laughs> that's the, true. Like when we were, it, people don't realize how much technology has changed things. My boss the other day, um, Chris Tuttle, he's awesome. Shout out to him. He's my friend. Um, he was talking about how media has become the way it has become how we organize Hmm. you know and it was so difficult when i was their age like um trying to connect with other queer people or other trans people it was so hard there was no such like there was no podcast there was no trans-specific partnership um now there's some like young people are documenting their transitions on youtube and it's so amazing just being a how they connect and how they can mobilize and how they could show their strength through social media. David Hogg, you know, he just put um, Laura Ingram on blast, like her, her, um, her, um, help me out here. I don't know what we're talking about. Sponsors. 
yes. on blast. Yes. And it worked like it worked. And it worked because social media and because we're able to show our numbers. And so I do think that like protesting and is one form of it's one tool that we have in our arsenal as activists, as advocates. And I think protesting does like two things. It, it shows your numbers, it shows your muscle, it shows your numbers, um, it says fear us, and it also tells, it energizes us. Yeah. Like it keeps us in the fight. It reminds us what we're here to do and that this is a long-term thing. This is a marathon. This is a movement. So well, and tons and tons of the protest signs and that the speeches and stuff talked about, okay, and now we need to go vote. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. sort of taking it from the streets to the ballot box. Yeah. I, I was really, really energized by the protest because um, I saw the young people, I saw them chanting, like, vote them out. Right. You know, and we know that just in terms of, like, political attitudes and political patterns, that if someone starts politically engaged when they're young, they tend to stay politically engaged throughout their life. And so, if, you know, these are these young people are like Generation Z. They're not even like millennials. Right. Um, if Generation Z is co- like commits themselves early on to to political activism and to engaging our, I think there's a potential for a resurgence of democracy. Yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, I do tend to agree about protest, and in particular, I, I um, like Saul Alinsky wrote about what we need to do to keep ourselves energized as a movement. And this was back in the 70s. Um, and one of the things that he talks about is that actions should be fun. And obviously not everything can be, but protests, I think that energizing part can be lost because I certainly don't think that standing in front of the White House with a protest sign is going to have a one-to-one relationship to directly changing policy. But protests are a way to, to get people to then be excited about letter writing and phone calls and meeting with representatives and voting and all of the other things that can have a more direct impact. So I think I agree with the very narrow idea that a protest in and of itself isn't going to change things, mm-hmm. but I feel like that's missing the point of the protest being one component of a larger movement. Yeah, and as many of the speakers said, this is about building a movement. So if the movement is aiming towards a society where gun violence is not the norm, it's going to take decades. Absolutely. So shifting topics, it's the end of March, which means it's almost Trans Day of Visibility. Right, March 31st of every year. And like we're visible. (laughs) (laughs) Can't y'all see us? Well, presumably the listeners at home cannot. Um, So visible. Although if someone is listening to this and looking through my window at the same time, super creepy. Uh, but hopefully the people in this room can see us. Available for speaking engagements. <laughs> At reasonable rates. <laughs> two for the price of two and a half. <laughs> Why two and a half? Because you always call me extra. <laughs> Insert pun line here. So one of the things that we did while preparing for this is we went on Facebook and asked people what they were interested in hearing about and talking about. And uh, the topic, um, how trans people are depicted in media, definitely got the most votes. Democracy, I like it. So in that spirit, um, I'm curious what our audience thinks. And we can just sort of do popcorn style unless anyone is dying to sit in the short chair of power dynamics. Um, 
But I'm curious what the audience thinks. Like when you hear trans people in media, depictions of trans people, um, what does that make you think of? Either topics or shows or um, experiences. Again, dead silence and a vague look of panic. <laughs> what was the question? I wasn't listening. <laughs> that's, our, that's our audience. When we say, how are trans people depicted in media? What does that make people think of? Are there particular shows that do a great or an awful job? Are there, um, yeah, please. Yeah. So um, one of the programs that I watch pre-regularly is um, I Am Jazz, about the young uh, transgender girl. And uh, I think it's a wonderful program because it, you know, it's real, it's real, and it shows the struggles that both Jazz and her family go through to help her through this journey, and um, I think you know for people to watch it, you know I think it probably evokes a fair degree of understanding, awareness, compassion for the struggles. And her, I'm sure, the one great thing about it is that she has a very supportive family, which is just wonderful. So it, it demonstrates the importance of having a supportive family. But, um, but I think a lot of people, if they watch it, um, they, they see also the difficulties that you go through in, you know, in transitioning. Well, and thank you so much for sharing. And I would certainly say that even though reality TV has many, 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 many limitations, seeing trans folks living their lives helps push forward the idea that trans people are people who should be allowed to live their lives. Absolutely. Any other shows people are particularly into or want to complain about? Yes? I love what Shonda Rhimes has been doing on Grey's Anatomy, so she's totally just normalized being trans. So she's had a few shows where you don't even know the character is trans until the end of the show. Mm. So it just is, you know, a, a woman who's going in for surgery, and then you, talk, you find out there's some criminal thing that's going on, and then you find out by the end of the show, Well, not so fast, because I mean, it's only one. <laughs> like, like, it's like, it's like, no, but I mean, it's like one, one director, like, we only have like a handful of like, trans depictions that we could say like, these are non-problematic good depictions, so it's like. Yeah, it's the only one I've seen, Yeah. Well, and I absolutely, so. I don't need a reason to start watching Grey's Anatomy again, so <laughs> thank you for that one. Um, I'm going to not allow myself to go on that tangent, other than to say it felt like the writers were specifically angry at their audience and wanted to hurt us. And that's when I stopped watching the show. Um, so a, a friend of ours, Jen Richards, who was creating her story and uh, co-wrote and co-starred in it and is now out in LA doing amazing, amazing things. 
Um, one of the things that she's talked about is the idea that there should be enough depictions of trans people that no one needs to hold up everything. And I think that's true across the board for depictions of people in media, whether it's about gender, sexuality, race, age, ethnicity, ability, whatever. Absolutely. We want enough that we don't have to keep saying, well, this is just the one good depiction. Um, I was thinking about that with what is the name of the uh, foreign film that won the Oscar that was about the trans woman? Fantastic Woman. The Fantastic Woman, thank you. Not the Fantastic. A Fantastic Woman, just one Fantastic Woman. No, it was Fantastic. Yeah, A Fantastic. A a single woman who is also Fantastic. Like the Fantastic Woman, she's not like a superhero. So it was the Fantastic Four and a woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, one um, of the Fantastic Four was a woman. Yes, that is, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> We're learning so much tonight. So. I digress. Uh, I've always wanted to say that. A Fantastic Woman. There was so much that I liked about it, including that it was a trans woman playing a trans character, which is always phenomenal. But at the same time, so much of the movie was about how hard it is and woe is me for being trans. And I don't think that's something that the character was doing. It was just the, the way the script and the director set it up. It was about the hardships of being trans. And yeah, so I like the idea. Yeah, it was written by a cis guy. <laughs> like, yeah. And I like the idea. I mean, no shade. He was a nice guy. I met him in New York, but he was a cis guy. Like, that that's what happened. Hopefully, we're able to have stories that the character just happens to be trans, not the trans story of the trans character doing trans things. Yeah. So, have you have you read Sarah's book? I have, so. How many of y'all have read Sarah McBride's book, Tomorrow Will Be Different? Like, ham, hands up. Just tell the two, three, three. Handful of people. Okay, y'all need to run out and get Sarah McBride's Tomorrow will be different. ASAP, it's a piece of liter- literary deliciousness, and you will devour it within hours. That's going to be the awesome. jacket for the second uh, printing, you know, literary deliciousness. I'll write the forward. Well, and, and that's another example of a trans person being able to speak for themselves. I mean, that's, that's a memoir of her experiences, and part of what she does really beautifully is weave in some trans 101 stuff. And I think, again, that in a, in a perfect world, I think the goal should be that not every trans story has to include Trans 101. Yeah. But I loved the way she was doing it in this accessible uh, framing so that if someone was entering her story without being familiar with trans identity, by the end of her book, not only do you have a wonderful sense of who she is, you also have these, I don't want to say lessons, because that sounds a lot more um, awkward, because they flow beautifully within the yeah. text of, of what does it mean to be trans more broadly than just this one person's experience. Well, I. I found that there wasn't too much trans 101 because um, what, if if you read uh, Janet Mock's Redefining Realness, the first book, there was a lot, like she had to do a lot of trans 101 because at the time it was one of the first mainstream uh, like trans memoirs. And so like I, I read it and it was like, it was more like a story, like she was narrating mm-hmm. a story. I didn't feel like there, there was... For Sarah's book, you mean? Yeah. I thought it was beautifully written. So I have a question for the audience, and I'm curious. We can do show of hands. We can do flutter fingers. We can do uh, applause is probably the easiest for people at home who are listening to this eventually in their ears. Um, So I'm curious, by a show of applause, who feels like only trans people should be playing trans roles? 
wait. By a show of applause, how many cis folks in here feel compelled to applaud? <laughs> Just one in the back. Uh, like two or three. No, there's a couple more. Um, so, Yeah, you don't count. Your daughter's trans. You can't, <laughs> you can't just out someone like that. Well, she's not here. <laughs> um, you've, you've taken me off topic once again. So I'm, I'm hesitant. My background is in theater. My background is in performance. Um, shocker, I know. And I'm really hesitant to, to say no cis person should be able to play trans roles, yeah. which I think puts me possibly in the minority within like the progressive trans community. And it's not because I think anyone should just be able to do whatever they want, but that it makes me nervous when we say this story should be inaccessible to this person to portray it. And I think what, where I would come from is I think any portrayal of, of a, um, an experience that isn't your own demands respect and training and education and research. But I, I just get really nervous when we say this, this person should never play this role. I feel like I'd be more upset, like if, if there was like a biopic of my life, I feel like I'd be more salty if I was played by a white girl than if I was played by like a non-trans person. <laughs> so in that case you're saying, which totally is understandable, you're saying that in that specific case for the biopic of your life, the racial depiction is maybe more important that it's authentic than Yeah, like trans. I get yeah. more upset when I see like white folks playing people of color because I'm like, so for example, like I think the Disney cast for Aladdin, like yeah. the guy was like white. I'm like, you couldn't find a like, uh, like a brown guy. Like, so why is that different? I'm not disagreeing. Yeah. Just, why like, is that different? Because like, you have so much brown to choose from. <laughs> Like, you have, like, all of Latin America and, like, North Africa and the Middle East and, like, Southeast Asia. Like, you can't pick one brown person, you know? Well, and I also think it speaks to the laziness that sometimes comes. And this, I think, is... A, like, uh, I think it's harder to cast a trans person because of our numbers. But what infuriates me is you do have directors who are called out on it afterwards. Yeah. And they'll say, like, I remember this with Dallas Buyers Club where the director in an interview was like, oh... I didn't know there were any trans actors. And that, I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, no, that's completely different. Like, I feel like if there's an intentionality on trying to cast a, like, a trans actor, I think, I think the intention, intentionality needs to be there. Absolutely. But I get more salty if I see like white people play people of color. And I think, like a lot of things in the trans community, there is no consensus on this. And Unfortunately, we do not have an annual well, vote. Well, except in this room, there was Apparently, a consensus. Apparently, there was consensus. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, shifting a little bit for the last section, uh, does anyone in wait, our- Wait, wait, we didn't actually ask. Does someone disagree? <laughs> That's true. Does anyone think- Yeah. Well, I don't disagree, but I want to add something to this discussion that always gets left out. Like, yes, trans people should play trans roles, absolutely. Trans people, should, trans actors should also get cis roles. Yeah. Trans actors yeah. should get roles. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Well said. And I like the like succinct, trans actors should get roles. Yeah. Period. Cast us, here's my headshot. Yeah. I also like, it was subtle, but I also like how she like clapped at the end of every word. Like trans actors should get trans roles. Like to put a little emphasis. 
I like that. It was a good touch. Well, I think we're going to wrap up this section of the show. Uh, so in just a minute, we're going to take a break. We'll let you know how long that's going to be. Y'all can go get a drink, go get a snack, tip your uh, bartenders. And then when we come back, we are going to have a couple of brief performances. Yay! So before people run away... Um, you can find the Trans-Specific Partnership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trans-Specific. You can find me at Rebecca Kling. You can find me at Joanna Cifredo. And thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thanks for our li um, listeners for listening. Uh, I am told that if you do actually subscribe to the show and rate and review, it helps us out. Please tell other people word of mouth is important. And spread the word. Tell your friends. And with that, let's hear it again for... Ten Tigers Parlor for David and for Outright and for our amazing live audience. And thank you. Bye. Live from Ten Tigers Parlor in Petworth, Washington, D.C. Are we recording right now? Yes, absolutely we are. No, for real? Yes. 100%. <laughs> Okay, let's begin. Let's do it. <laughs> hello, hello, and welcome to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm your host, Joanna Cifredo. And I'm your host, Rebecca Kling, coming at you.